So Ashlyn, tell me one thing here. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, if you could, if you could tell the entire world one thing, um, and they wouldn't just hear you, they would listen. Uh, like what would what would you say? Like for one moment, the entire world was quiet, and what you said echoed around the entire globe. What would you say? I don't know if I'm qualified uh, to have something to say that powerful, but I think the one thing that I believe people could learn from and and adapt the most is empathy. Hmm. I think no matter what side of the, this conversation, you might listen to this podcast and you think the four of us are heretics and the four of us are, (laughs) you know, that this is, um, (laughs) that we're going down a dangerous path and that we're going to lead other people down a dangerous path. You might believe that you might listen to this and think, well, why, you know, why haven't these people figured this out sooner? Um, no matter what side of the conversation you come down on or no matter what side of the political aisle or the religious aisle you come down on, um, you're just not going to convince me that the world wouldn't be a better place if everyone tried a little harder to understand each other and and understand what other people go through and, and live life from the perspective of other people. So I really think that that's the, that's the thing. That's the one thing that changes us and uh it's it, you asked me earlier what my ethos would be if i don't know if i'm a christian if i don't know how to define that anymore i think that the it's empathy hmm. and it's the one thing i really if the whole world could listen i would tell them let's just try to be more empathetic hmm. that's probably what jesus would say too i agree hmm. what about you julie um I agree with Ashlyn. It's very difficult because I just don't think that I should be able to tell the world everything, something, and have everybody listen. Um, <clears throat> but similar to to empathy, I would just I would want everybody to um, engage in I would say emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. I would say everything from self awareness and self love to empathy and loving other humans. Um, I think I I would synthesize it in saying, have emotional intelligence, but also be unapologetic Mm -hmm. about chasing after and choosing what you love. And so I think if, if you love loving everybody in the world, that's great. But I just think we spend far, far, far too much time trying to figure out what everybody else thinks we should do or what we should love or how we should love um, that we just kind of miss the mark for so long. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's Lauren? it. <laughs> Man, unapologetic. I love that. Because um, I have always been very apologetic. Um that's exactly it uh learn to take a deep breath in and accept the process um and don't try to skip any steps just just feel the moment you're in and i i think i echo everybody else when i say i don't even feel like i should have the authority to I don't know, quote unquote, preach anything, but just um, this is what I have learned that I am not going to know everything. I am not going to have a concrete black and white answer for everything in my life. And I am now finally, years later, okay with that. Hmm. Um, And I am unapologetic for that and anybody that decides that they have the answer for what is deep within my heart um i hate to tell them but i don't care i'm not listening and it's um i don't know i'm just i'm just ready to take charge of of who I am and stop listening to other people's crazy opinions. So, yeah. Mark, what would you say? 
Yeah, your turn, buddy. <laughs> so there's this thing called the overview effect. Um, the overview effect is something that arguably all astronauts experience uh, when they blast off into space and they start either orbiting the earth or they make their way um, or they make their way to uh you know the moon uh the overview effect is kind of like when they turn back around um and it's this moment of like bigness and smallness all at the same time uh they, they look back at the planet and they uh they realize that like we as humans like we don't inhibit in our, I'm sorry, that we don't inhabit the earth, um, but that we are the earth. Uh, like this single biosphere, like emerging and evolving, um, that we're like this emergent property that humans are made of the same elements as like the deepest blues of the ocean and the trees. Um, that we are not like of this world, but we're, we are this world. Like we're one system, um, like breathing and kind of flowing together. Um, and the unique experiences that these individuals, that these astronauts, um, these men and women uh, get to partake in uh, um, is like this concept that they are not outside the earth looking like back at it, but rather rather they are like a part of the system, kind of like looking in on itself, that they've created like a distance um, between them and the reality that takes place on the surface. And it's like this unique distance allows them to experience in a sense, like the universe kind of looking in on itself. It's like, this is like what I, what I feel right now. Like if I'm going to tell anyone, if I could tell the whole world, one thing, I would tell them to create a gap, um, between them and the reality that lives on the surface. Um, cause I feel like that's what I've done. Like all of the conflicts and the issues and the opinions that I held like deeply, they literally begin to disappear when I can create this distance between me and myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that like the borders that I created um, only exist within my mind, like the dissonances between me and the people that don't believe what I believe. Um, they seem to just resolve when I'm able to pull myself back far enough to realize that we are literally in this all together. I mean, Absolutely. like, like from this distance, let's, let's, let's just kind of take this, you know, I, imagine yourself like you're, you're in a spacecraft for a spacecraft, like, as a, you know, like you're orbiting from this distance, like cussing can't be heard, <laughs> you know, it can't, uh, racism can't be seen and sex is natural mm -hmm. and normal and, uh, <laughs> should be talked about. How about that? Um, uh, the gravity from the church uh, that they put on the morality of masturbation and sex is completely trivial. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that it's healthy and it should be embraced. Um, the war among different beliefs and among the right and left political viewpoints, um, among the stance on homosexuality and LGBTQ, on gun rights, and about the competency of our president. Literally none of this stuff exists from this distance <laughs> when we can create like this space between ourselves and the world that we've created it we realize the only basic truth is that we're literally like in this all together absolutely it's space but it's space and i i think that for me was the biggest thing when i i had that space even just for five mm -hmm. minutes mm -hmm. and could breathe and was like oh my gosh it's just me what yeah. is me yeah and and that space is priceless it is it's absolutely priceless yeah when we can create the space between ourselves and the world that we've created the world that created into us uh mm -hmm. we realize like there's only one basic truth you know we're literally in this all together that's what i would say we're in this together create the space to see that there's no borders between countries and there's no borders between us and that's it Hey friends, welcome to the Mark Explains the Universe podcast. I want to thank you guys so much for listening in to part three of The Uncensored Christian. My name is Mark and I am the host of this podcast. And uh, if you haven't done so yet, make sure you head on over to iTunes or Podbean 
and subscribe to these bi-weekly podcasts, even though we had one come out yesterday and last week. This is kind of a special occurrence. Make sure you head on over there. They come out every other week. And also make sure you head on over to Instagram at mark.explains and on Facebook, uh, which is facebook.com slash markexplainspodcast. I will be releasing some fun new content soon, uh, and you don't want to be missing out on that. Um, Now, as we spoke before, we initially were going to break the Uncensored Christian into two parts, but we decided to do three because Julie's story was so rich and dense. We wanted to not cut out anything. We wanted to keep it all in. And so that was the one that was released yesterday. And today we kind of dive into my story and a little bit about why all of my deconstruction happened with my faith and uh, what that's all about. And so I do want to advise you that this episode does talk a little bit about sexual assault and rape. Uh, So please do what you need to do to prepare for any trigger points during this conversation. And also, of course, there's some language that some might consider offensive, but uh, we do not. We we welcome everything here uh, at the Mark Explains podcast. I fucking love it. So I hope you find all the love and life in this last episode the part three of the uncensored christian uh, where we talk a little bit about me thank you guys so much for listening and enjoy this episode a little bit about me Uh, i don't think any of you actually know my full story Um, i know i think probably ashlyn knows the most possibly Um, julie knows a a different part Um, I think what I've told Ashlyn and what I've told Julie is just different due to the circumstance of uh, those conversations that we've had. Um, Lauren, I think you know that I'm a male. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I think you know that I was married. And I think it's a a spectrum. How does Lauren know? It's a spectrum. She's, She's come to conclusions by predisposed cultural right. stigmas instilled in her through social identity and constructs, but it's fine. <laughs> but that assumption would be fair to assume. Um, I was raised with five, not five, gosh. I was raised with four siblings. Um, I'm the very middle child. Um, I have older sister Sarah and then older brother Ben than me and younger sister Kristen and younger sister Jessica and we grew up in Michigan and then moved out to California for like a couple of years and then back to Michigan um, at a pretty young age. I grew up, most of my childhood, I think, my is Michigan, central Michigan. Grew up in Charlotte, Chartucky, which is like on the north side of uh, Bellevue. <laughs> uh, Frontier Days. <laughs> dude, Frontier Days is... oh. It brings such such like a deep emotion out of me is Charlotte Frontier Days where you go down to the courthouse and just buy other people's garbage, and it's just so <laughs> it's just so much fun. It really is. Um, but I I learned something really early on, um, and I didn't realize it until uh, later on in my life, um, and that is. Uh, All of my memories that I have as a kid, um, I have with my dad and my siblings, um, and my mom is not in almost all of them. And I didn't realize what this was until later on, until I've really deconstructed and been able to examine my life from an outside perspective, kind of looking in. And I realized that at a young age, my mom didn't like uh, any of us kids. Um, And mom, I love you if you're listening. Uh, this is nothing against you. Um, and, but she specifically didn't like me. Um, and this is something that I've come to a conclusion. This is not something I've heard her say. Uh, I can, I have a few very vivid uh, memories that come to mind now that looking out, if I were to hear somebody tell me, I would, I would be shocked and say, what, what, like, there's no way that is a, a, I mean, a parent who loves you, but I mean, like, why would they do that? And I can, I can remember specifically one, one instance, uh, I was walking into high school, but it was like a week before my freshman year, I was homeschooled fifth, sixth and seventh grade. And then, uh, in eighth grade, I went to a Christian school. And then in ninth grade, I went to Charlotte high school. And so this was really like the first 
taste of public social constructs that I've that I've really had. And so like I'm diving in, I'm excited, new friends. My best friend Nate was was had always gone to public school, so I was gonna finally be able to hang with him. He was a grade beneath me, I think. Maybe he was in my grade. It's hard to tell these days. Um, and uh, we're walking in to set my whole schedule for all four years. I mean, this is what you do in high school. You go and meet the guidance counselor. And so I sat down with my mom by my side and the guidance counselor in front of me. And um, they basically gave me this whole list. And it always started with choir first thing in the morning. And then it kind of went through my schedule for through all four years. And, uh, and then the the guidance counselor was like, all right, now uh, you're going to start in uh, September of 1997. You're going to graduate June of 2001. And I remember my mom said, like right at that instant, she responded and she said, Psh, he's not going to graduate on time. And I remember like, I, and then I, I said, yes, I will. Like in, in defense, like, I can't believe you would say that. And she goes, no, you won't. I'll bet you $20 you don't graduate on time. Wow. And... I didn't graduate on time. I almost had a self-fulfilling prophecy that my mom spoke into my life. I didn't. I didn't graduate on time. I had to go do correspondence school over the summer after my senior year and come back for one last semester. I was 19. Um, my mom instilled a level of unacceptance in my life at a young age. And that propelled me into a high school life of really being unaccepted in high school. I wasn't popular by any means. Um, it really, it really was tough because high school can kind of tear you apart if you're not, if you're not a, a confident person right off the bat. I wasn't necessarily a really good looking uh, young kid. I think I've kind of grown into uh, the body that I have now, but it took, I matured a lot later. High school, I had like messed up teeth and I was chubby and uh, high school really tore me apart. It really, uh, it, it, it tore my self-confidence apart knowing going into it um, that I had none to start with. And they, they caught on to that. Like kids, kids, they don't realize like high school kids don't realize, but they really grab on to, to things subconsciously and they really grabbed on to that. Um, and so it's important to start that whole story off that way. Um, because, uh, it kind of, it kind of propels me. I was raised religious, uh, from a young age. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, having encounters with God as Ashlyn would call it um, at different ages. And, um, but it like, I really went through high school not really caring. And it was right after high school. It wasn't long. Um, I want to say it was a week before my 21st birthday. So this was 2003 and I graduated in 2002, a year late. Uh, so this was a week. This was like September of 2003. I went to this outreach at Olivet college. Um, and uh, it was, I, Lauren, I think you might have been there, actually. I'm pretty, I think I, I was just going to say, I think I know what you're going to yeah, talk about. I, I yeah, think, I think you were there. It was done by the Bellevue Christian Center. Uh, yeah. Paul Silvis was there. And big, tall John Nevetsky was Jesus. <laughs> and uh, they did a, a human video is what they call it, where they act out um, these things to the words of the song as it's playing and it instills emotion, an emotional response. It a hundred percent does. Um, and they did a song called when God ran and, uh, it's basically these two stories in the song where people had a hard time and their life was shit. And then they called to God and, and Jesus ran to them. And like John Nevesky physically ran through the building, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hugging people. And I lost it. I don't, I couldn't, I had this emotional response. Like no one had ran for me my entire life ever. And now it's like, holy shit. Like someone, something finds me valuable. And I, I, I've just never experienced that before. And 
Um, I, the reason I tell this story is because I wasn't really into drugs. I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't really have anything as Paul Silvis would say. He like, I remember him saying, he's like, it was weird how you threw yourself into this because immediately after that, I was like, I was in, I was all in, you know, dove head first and then me. And then it was like, uh, Nate Parrish and Luke Dickinson Taylor and Aaron Wade. McNair and our band Taylor Wade literally became the worship team for this Bellevue Christian Center and they like it drew in so many people and it was like it Paul Paul like he told me a couple of times he's like I don't know what threw you in and I didn't have the ability to answer back then because I didn't really know but now that I see it was because they wanted me because mm -hmm. someone found value in me. He's like, he said, he's like, it didn't seem like you had anything to be saved from, but for me, it was, I was being saved from a life of not feeling valued. And if you, it, there is almost nothing lower in life than feeling like you have no value on this earth. Like you have no worth or merit or anything. And that's, I threw myself into this religion. I like head first into this religion. And it, it was, it was so good for me, um, in a lot of senses, but, um, we all know <laughs> that's not really, uh, where the story ends. Um, so, uh, to back up a little bit, um, I was raised Christian, uh, evangelical, uh, Protestant or charismatic. I went to the Assemblies of God, of course. Can I ask you a quick, quick question, Mark? So yeah, just yeah, knowing yeah. you a little bit, I know that um, your mom, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but this might be interesting as far as the story goes. Your mom is Jewish or a Messianic Messianic Jew. Jew. Can you, yes. Can you explain that? So you, so you grew up in a. In no, a home I didn't where your actually. Was, no, I didn't actually grow up in a Messianic Jew environment, um, Jewish environment. I grew up in uh, Assemblies of God, uh, evangelical, charismatic. Uh, my mom converted to Messianic Judaism later on in life, by like mid high school, and when I didn't really care about any of that shit. Um, so it like it didn't it didn't affect me at all. So that didn't have any influence on anything. No, no. I I always thought it was cool. Um, you know, if my mom found a worth and a value in something that didn't really apply to me in any capacity, she found it, and I respected that. That was fine. You know, some people find value in Catholicism um, or whatever. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't even understand it. Mostly, I just remember her saying, "No, I'm like a Jew who believes in Jesus." And in my mind, I was like, "Wait, <laughs> so, 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 so you're, you're, so you're Christian, so you're Christian." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's, uh, you know, that that's kind of how it went. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I really have a lot of love for my family um, and even for my mom. I, I really do. Um, I am the person I am today because of her and because of my dad. I love my dad uh, tremendously. Um, uh, but uh, my, my entire life basically was shaped by like this faith-based religion. Um, that was until, um, you know, I, I mean, I went to Master's Commission in 2004 through 2007 and then I, I took a job as a pastor, a, a worship pastor at a couple different churches that the first one kind of fell apart due to uh, um, some poor structuring uh, pastorally. And then the second one... Were you a youth pastor in Fort, uh, Fort or Cape Coral? Yeah, it was terrible. I don't want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> uh, but th that was one of the beginning parts, uh, the deconstruction of my entire faith like i call it the harbor where i harbor all of my pain is when i was uh part of uh the first assembly of god down in fort myers i lived i went over to the cape coral side for first assembly west and was ridiculed because i wasn't bleeding the kids dry of money which i felt like was not my job and uh but i've since uh not only forgiven the individual that really tore me to pieces, but I actually called that person about a year and a half ago and had a conversation with them. The first one in 10 years, it's like literally held on to something for 10 years and was, wow. <laughs> I was a wreck. <laughs> oh man. I like called them and said, Hey, I've held on to a lot of bitterness and I am sorry for that. And he's like, dude, I am so sorry. I had no idea. And I hung up the phone and like, I felt like I just 
crumbled in my living room and yeah like cried i'm like hysterical crying for like 10 minutes and then it was like shoom, and it was completely over and it was like mm-hmm. that weight of that whole thing that i had held for 10 years was completely it was just a story with a period you know mm-hmm. yeah that's such a long time that's so tough <sighs> yeah wow it really is it's huge long time to hold on to that kind of stuff yeah he prayed with me and the whole time I was, uh, I was gritting my teeth. Um, I was going to say, was that a good or bad thing for you? Like, it, it what was, was your thoughts on that? I didn't care. I, I, was, I yeah. was indifferent because this wasn't about him or his prayer. This was about me. Um, I think it was a long time ago I, I came across the saying, um, forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing that person is you. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what that yeah. was for me. That, that was yeah. me. Oh. So I went through, I went through master's commission and then I, I got out and got married and, uh, moved to Michigan. And, uh, in 2012, which is pretty late in my life, I decided to go to college, went to Michigan state university, G- get that. I graduated late from high school with a GPA of like 0.7. And I went through LCC Lansing community college, um, later on in life and graduated there. Um, uh summa cum laude and yeah and got a full scholarship to michigan state university and went there awesome yes so i'm shocked about your story about high school because you exist in my world as like one of the (laughs) most intelligent people i know so just like how life changes right that's so it's so kind thank you i appreciate that you know i'm um, I think one thing that college did for me was give me value in the form of a piece of paper. And it was, it was a tangible self value piece of, it was like an article that I can hold onto like a piece of paper, something physical that I can hold in my hands that proves to me that I have value. And that obviously resonates deep in my past and in my story. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I went to college, um, uh, you know, and I know the argument and the critique, you know, um, I was raised with the idea that going to a liberal school, which Michigan State University is not necessarily liberal, it's just a university. And uh, um, if, if you go there, then uh, you become a liberal and God doesn't exist. And uh, uh, especially if you're a scientist. Um, funny, a lot of these viewpoints come from people that never actually went to school. <laughs> um, but be regard- careful. You don't want the influence of too many smart people in your life. <laughs> yeah, regardless. Too many smart people around you. I can't have that. Can't have intelligence. Um, regardless, it wasn't the school uh, teaching me uh, that God doesn't exist or forcing me into liberal uh, liberalism um, or libertarianism, which uh, I've been dabbling in. Um, uh, but rather, I was uh, learning about geoscience and chemistry. Those are my two majors that I got two degrees in, um, and also studying astrophysics and quantum mechanics, and looking at like the bigness and the smallness of the universe. Like this is what I love. I, if you know me, then you know I love space, um, and you know I love how big things are, and that you know I love the quantum, uh, the quantum world in the the physics that are like the smallness and the bigness and how there are similarities. It's very strange. Um, this knowledge though, gave me like confidence to talk and to speak intelligently about things that I found so interesting. Um, but I still had this like faith at the time back in like 2012, 2013, I was still leading worship for uh, a church in Holt, Michigan called journey life church. Uh, I believe Julie, you actually visited back I in did. the day. Uh, I remember you coming in and sitting in the back in the center. I remember I was like, I see, I see you. And then, um, Ashlyn came and actually led worship with me once on stage for like a worship night, I believe. Um, and did a couple of times. We did a couple of those and some Sunday morning services. I yeah, think. I yeah, saying, you I did. I came more than fun. once too, Sir Mark. Oh uh, yeah, of course, of course you did, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but this, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, I leading worship. I it was it was great, but this education it gave me confidence, and that propelled me to want to learn everything about my religion. And I mean, there was so much about the Bible that I could not intelligently talk about. Uh, you know, like when was the Bible put together? Like by who? Um, 
Was it always the Bible? Like when the apostles talked about like this scripture, was it like the Old Testament or was it just like one of the books or did they even call them the books? Like I felt like there was so many questions I had about this faith that I had since I was born basically that I just had no idea how to answer. Um, so I went digging. I wanted to know everything. I wanted, because I, I felt like if I could, if I could know everything, then I could, I could, I could talk about it intelligently. And I just, I couldn't talk about the Bible. I could just rehearse the rhetoric that had been force fed to me my entire life. It was just this circle reasoning. And I wanted to be intelligent. I didn't want a circle. I wanted it to be, to be unique. I wanted it to be this multifaceted thing. And it wasn't, it was just this circle. It was just boring. So I went digging and I, I, you know, I, uh, I wanted to know about the Bible and my religion and about my faith. And, uh, you know, my faith wouldn't be like flimsy or fragile. You know, I wanted it to be vibrant. Um, and the first things that I uncovered (laughs) were like, and, and mind you, this was not something I was trying to do. I was trying to learn about it so I could talk intelligently about it. But the first things that I really uncovered about the Bible were its inconsistencies, like the contradictions, even within like the same books. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile a lot of those, but I literally just kind of like pushed them under the rug. Um, and I started keeping track of all the different inconsistencies because I wanted to make sure I like wasn't crazy. And so I like started like a Google or an Excel spreadsheet, uh, because that's what I do. Um, and I reached a certain number, I don't know, a few hundred. And I was like, man, I just need to Google this <laughs> and found that someone else obviously had already done all of this. And so many, so many more, there's like something like 3000 or 3,200 biblical contradictions. And you know, if you're, if you're curious, um, and you're like, no, you're full of shit. Um, just Google the word biblical contradictions and click on images and you'll see something called the reason project. It's a black, um, it's like this black page with these red arcs. Um, and what it is, it's a timeline where, uh, these red arcs are connecting the contradictions with numbers. And then you scroll onto the number and you can see the two Bible verses or three or five or 10 that contradict each other. Wow. And wow. really, and I mean, not, not even joking, like 33 to 30, 32, 3300 contradictions that are like, some are like small and don't really matter, but some are like major contradictions. Um, and I, I was like a little shocked at that. I was a little shooken and I was like, okay, so the Bible has some historical inaccuracies. Granted, this thing was written over 1500 years by 60 different authors. Okay. So, you know, there's some historical inaccuracies. That's okay. Um, or some, uh, I used to say inconsistencies because then after that came the historical inaccuracies because I myself, um, am a scientist and I've touched on this in some, re- um, some, uh, uh, in earlier episodes, um, and I encourage if you haven't listened to those, go back and listen. Um, uh, stuff like uh, in Genesis, uh, God says He made trees before stars, which is ridiculous because the the carbon atoms found in the living things were literally made in the center of a star during like thermonuclear synthesis or during like a supernova. Um, you know, it's like so when the star when the star scatters its guts all over the universe, that's us. And it's saying that a tree was made before the star. This is ridiculous. Not only that, but like in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a different accounts of creation. So there was just, or like Noah and the ark and the earth stopped spinning. And there's so many historical inaccuracies. Like it's, it's just crazy. And, and so now remember, like I wasn't looking for this stuff. It was trying to learn everything I could about this faith that I held. This was mine, just like everyone else that I, that I got along with. There were so many things that I found organically on this journey you know, and it, it, it was just like this inner turmoil. It was just kind of going on. And I, I was still leading worship, um, but and I was still learning all this stuff. Um, but then there was one thing. And it was this one thing that kind of tore down everything. And I watched a documentary. And I'll leave the link of the documentary in the show notes so you can go and check it out. And uh, I would like to read you a little bit uh, from this documentary, if that's okay with you guys. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. This is kind of the thing that tore me down. Um, so this is uh, from the documentary. 
So let me introduce you to Horus. Now he is the sun god of Egypt of around 3000 BC. Now it is important to note this date as it predates anything biblical by about 1500 years. Now he is the sun anthropomorphized and his life is a series of allegorical myths involving the sun's movement in the sky. From the ancient hieroglyphics in Egypt, we know much about this solar messiah. For instance, Horus being the sun or the light had an enemy known as Set, and Set was the personification of the darkness or night. Now, metaphorically speaking, every morning Horus would win the battle against Set, while in the evening, Set would conquer Horus and send him into the underworld. Now, it is important to note that this dark versus light, or good versus evil, is one of the most ubiquitous mythological dualities ever known and is still expressed on many levels, even to this day. Broadly speaking, the story of Horus is as follows. Horus was born on December 25th of the Virgin Isis Miri. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, which in turn three kings followed to locate and adorn the newborn savior. At the age of 12, he was a prodigal child teacher, and at the age of 30, he was baptized by a figure known as Anup, and thus began his ministry. Horus had 12 disciples he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick and walking on water. Horus was known by many gestural names such as the Truth, the Light, God's Anointed Son, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, and many others. After being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried for three days, and thus resurrected. These attributes of Horus, whether original or not, seem to permeate in many cultures of the world, for many other gods are found to have this same general mythological structure. Addies of Phyriga, born of a virgin Nana on December 25th, crucified and placed in the tomb after three days was resurrected. Krishna of India, born of the virgin Devaki with a star in the east, signaling his coming, performed miracles with his disciples, and upon his death was resurrected. Dionysus of Greece, born of a virgin on December 25th, was traveling teacher who performed miracles such as turning water into wine. He was referred to as the King of Kings, God's only begotten Son, the Alpha, the Omega, and many others. And upon his death, he was resurrected. Mithra of Persia, born of a virgin on December 25th, had 12 disciples and performed miracles, and upon his death was buried for three days and thus resurrected. He also was referred to as the truth, the light, and many others. And interestingly, uh, the sacred day of the worship of Mithra was also Sunday. Uh, the fact of the matter here is that there are numerous saviors from different periods from all over the world which subscribe to these general characteristics. So the question remains, why these attributes? Why the virgin birth on December 25th? Why dead for three days and the inevitable resurrection? Why 12 disciples or followers? Uh, so to find out, let's examine the most recent of the solar messiahs, Jesus Christ was born of a Virgin Mary on December 25th in Bethlehem. His birth was announced by a star in the east, which three kings or magi followed to locate and adorn the new savior. He was a child teacher at the age of 12, and at the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and thus began his ministry. Jesus had 12 disciples, which he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. And he was also known as the King of Kings and the Son of God, the light of the world, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God and many others. After being betrayed by his disciple Judas and sold for 30 pieces of silver, he was crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Now first of all, the birth sequence is completely astrological. The star in the east, of course, is Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, which on December 24th aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt. Now, these bright stars are called today what they've always been called, the Three Kings. Now, the Three Kings and the brightest star, Sirius, all point to the place of the sunrise on December 25th. This is why the Three Kings follow the star in the east in order to locate the sunrise or the birth of the sun. There's another very interesting phenomenon that occurs on December 25th. 
or the winter solstice. From the summer solstice to the winter solstice, the, the days become shorter and they become colder. From the perspective of the northern hemisphere, the sun appears to move south and get smaller and more scarce. The shortening of the days and the expiration of the crops when approaching the winter solstice symbolizes the procession of death to the ancients. It was the death of the sun. And by December 22nd, the sun's demise was fully realized. For the sun, having moved south continually for six months, makes its lowest point in the sky. Here, a curious thing happens though. The sun stops moving south, at least perceivably, for three days. And during this three-day pause, the sun resides in the vicinity of the Southern Cross, or the Crux constellation. This is astrological. And after this time, on December 25th, the sun moves one degree, but this time to the north, foreshadowing longer days, warmth, and spring. And thus it is said, the sun died on the cross, was dead for three days, only to be resurrected or born again. This is why Jesus and numerous other sun gods share the crucifixion, the three-day death, and the resurrection concept. It is the sun's transition period before it shifts in its direction back into the northern hemisphere, bringing spring and thus salvation. However, they did not celebrate the resurrection of the sun until the spring equinox, or Easter. This is because at the spring equinox, the sun officially overpowers the evil darkness, as daytime therefore becomes longer in duration than night, and the revitalizing conditions of spring emerge. Now, probably the most obvious of all astrological symbolism around Jesus regards the 12 disciples. They are simply the 12 constellations of the zodiac, which Jesus, being the sun, travels about with. In fact, the number 12 is replete through the Bible. This text has more to do with astrology, though, than anything else. Now, coming back to the cross of zodiac, the figurative life of the sun, this was not just an artistic expression or tool to track the sun's movement. It was also a pagan spiritual symbol, the shorthand of which looks like this, a cross with a circle in the center, seen ubiquitously among faith establishments everywhere. This is not a symbol of Christianity, it is a pagan adaptation of the cross of the zodiac. This is why Jesus, in early occult art, is always shown with his head on the cross. For Jesus is the Son, the Son of God, the light of the world, the risen Savior who will come again, as it does every morning. The glory of God who defends against the work of darkness as he is born again every morning and can be seen coming in the clouds. Now, of many of the astrological, astronomical metaphors in the Bible, one of the most important has to do with the ages. Throughout the scripture, there are numerous references to the, quote, age. In order to understand this, we need to be familiar with the phenomenon known as the procession of the equinoxes. The ancient Egyptians, along with cultures long before them, realized that approximately every 2150 years, the sunrise on the morning of the spring equinox would occur at a different sign of the zodiac. This has to do with the slow, angular wobble that the Earth maintains as it rotates on its axis. This is called a procession because the constellations go backwards rather than through their normal yearly cycle. The amount of time that it takes for a procession to go through all 12 signs is roughly 25,765 years. This is also called the Great Year. And the ancient societies were very aware of this. They referred to each 2150 year period as a quote age. From 4300 BC to 2150 BC, it was the age of Taurus, the bull. And from 21 BC to 1 AD, it was the age of Aries, the ram. And from 1 AD to 2150 AD, it is the age of Pisces, the age we are still in to this day. And in around 2150, we will enter the new age, the age of the Aquarius. Now, the Bible reflects, broadly speaking, a symbolic movement through three ages, while foreshadowing a fourth. In the Old Testament, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, he is very upset to see his people worshiping a golden bull calf. In fact, he shattered the stone tablets and instructed his people to kill each other in order to purify themselves. Most biblical scholars would attribute this anger to the fact that the Israelites were worshiping a false idol or something to that effect. 
The reality is that the golden bull is Taurus the bull, and Moses represents the new age of Aries the ram. This is why Jews even today still blow the ram's horn. Moses represents the new age of Aries, and upon the new age, everyone must shed the old age. Other deities mark this transition as well, a pre-Christian God who kills the bull in the same symbology. Now Jesus is the figure who ushers in the age following Aries, the age of the Pisces or the two fish. Fish symbolism is very abundant in the New Testament as Jesus is known as the great fisherman. He feeds 5,000 people with bread and two fish. When he begins his ministry walking along Galilee, he befriends two fishermen who follow him. The Pope's mitre or hat is incontrovertibly a fish head representing Pisces. And I think we've all seen the Jesus fish on the back of people's cars. Little do they know what it actually means. It is a pagan astrological symbolism for the sun's kingdom during the age of Pisces. Also, Jesus's assumed birthday is essentially the start of this date. At Luke 22.10, when Jesus is asked by his disciples where the next Passover will be when he is gone, Jesus replied, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. This scripture is by far one of the most revealing of all the astrological references. The man bearing the pitcher of water is Aquarius, the water bearer, who is always pictured as a man pouring out a pitcher of water. He represents the age after Pisces. When the sun, God's sun, leaves the age of Pisces, it will go into the house of Aquarius, as Aquarius follows Pisces in the procession of the equinoxes. All Jesus is saying is that after the age of Pisces will come the age of Aquarius. Now we have heard about the end times and the end of the world. Apart from the cartoonish depictions of the book of Revelation, the main source of this idea comes from Matthew 28:20, where Jesus says, I will be with you to the very end of the world. However, in the King James Version, world is a mistranslation among many mistranslations. The actual word being used is eon, which means age, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Which is true, as Jesus' solar Piscean personification will end when the sun enters the age of Aquarius. The entire concept of the end times and the end of the world is a misinterpreted astrological allegory. Now, let's tell that to the approximately 100 million people in America who believe the end of the world is coming. Furthermore, the character of Jesus, a literary and astrological hybrid, is most explicitly a plagiarism of the Egyptian sun god Horus. For example, inscribed about 3,500 years ago on the walls of the Temple of Luxor in Egypt are images of the Annunciation, the Immaculate Conception, the Birth, the Adoration of Horus. Now remember, this is 2,000 years before anything in the Bible was written. The images begin with Thaw announcing the virgin Isis that she will conceive Horus, then Neph, the Holy Ghost, impregnating the virgin, and then the virgin birth and the adoration. This is exactly the story of Jesus' miracle conception. In fact, the literary similarities between Horus and Jesus are staggering and the plagiarism is continuous. The story of Noah and Noah's Ark is taken directly from tradition. The concept of a great flood is ubiquitous throughout the ancient world, with over 200 different cited claims in different periods of time. However, one need look no further for a pre-Christian source than the Epic of Gilgamesh, written in 2600 BC. This story talks of a great flood commanded by God and an ark with saved animals upon it, and even the release and the return of a dove, all held in common with the biblical story, among many other similarities. Furthermore, Moses is known as the lawgiver, the giver of the Ten Commandments of the Mosaic Law. However, the idea of a law being passed from God to a prophet on a mountain is a very old motif. Moses is just a lawgiver in a long line of lawgivers in mythological history. In India, Manu was the great lawgiver. In Crete, Minos ascended from Mount Dicta, where Zeus gave him the sacred laws. While in Egypt, there was Mises, who carried stone tablets, and upon them the laws of God were written. As far as the Ten Commandments, they are taken outright from the Spell 125 of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. 
What the book of the dead phrased, I have not stolen, became thou shalt not steal. I have not killed, became thou shalt not kill. I have not told lies, became thou shalt not bear false witness, and so forth. In fact, the Egyptian religion is likely the primary foundational basis for the Judeo-Christian religion. Baptism, afterlife, final judgment, virgin birth, and resurrection, crucifixion, the Ark of the Covenant, circumcision, saviors, holy communion, the great flood, Easter, Christmas, Passover, and many, many more. All are attributes to the Egyptian ideas long created in Christianity in Judaism. The Bible is nothing more than an astro-theological literary fold hybrid, just like nearly all religious myths before it. In fact, the aspect of transference of one character's attributes to a new character can be found within the book itself. In the Old Testament, there's the story of Joseph, and Joseph was a prototype for Jesus. Joseph was born of a miracle birth, and so was Jesus. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and Jesus had 12 disciples. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Brother Judah suggests the sale of Joseph, while disciple Judas suggests the sale of Jesus. Joseph began his work at the age of 30, while Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30, and the parallels go on and on. Furthermore, is there any non-biblical historical evidence of any person living with the name Jesus, the son of Mary, who traveled about with 12 followers, healing people and the like? There are numerous historians who lived in and around the Mediterranean, either during or soon after the assumed life of Jesus. How many of these historians document this figure? Not one. However, to be fair, that doesn't mean defenders of the historical Jesus haven't claimed for the contrary, for historians are typically referenced to justify Jesus' existence. Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Tactius, and then, of course, Josephus. And the fourth source has been proven to be a forgery for hundreds of years. Sadly, it is still cited as truth. Now, you would think that a guy who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven for all eyes to see and performed a wealth of miracles acclaimed to him would have made it into a historical record beyond the Bible. It didn't, because once the evidence is weighed, there are very high odds that the figure known as Jesus never existed. The reality is, Jesus was the solar deity of the Gnostic Christian sect, and like all other pagan gods, he was a mythological figure. It was the political establishment that sought to historize the Jesus figure for social control. By 325 AD in Rome, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea, and it was during this meet that the politically motivated Christian doctrines were established, and thus began a long history of Christian bloodshed and spiritual fraud. And over the next 1600 years, the Vatican maintained a political stronghold in all of Europe, leading to such joyous periods as the Dark Ages, along with enlightening events such as the Crusades and the Inquisition. Wow, there's a, there's a lot in there. There really is. <laughs> now, you guys have to understand that by the time that all of this came crashing into my life, that I was already pretty far down the road of deconstruction. Um, there were some truths that I was still holding on to, like the non-negotiables. I'm sure you guys all had those, um, you know, when it comes to our faith. Uh, but this was it. Like, this was the thing that not only compromised the structure, but this made the whole system come crashing down. Um, you know, I didn't know what to do with this information. I didn't know what to do with it. Like, uh, the, I felt like the trap door f like fell out from underneath me and like all hope for anything was uh, anything after death was definitely gone. Um, but all hope in general was gone. Like I, I almost immediately and instantly became like a nihilist and that like nothing mattered because nothing existed beyond death. You know, as a scientist, that's actually a pretty smart conclusion. Nothing existed before life, so nothing exists after it. You know, it's, you know, a pretty smart uh, conception um, uh, and realization. But Jesus wasn't real. Um, and the hope for life after death was a joke. Um, and I nearly choked about thinking all the lies that I was fed my whole life, like thinking all of those things. Um, now, I did the appropriate research for all of this and found some of the flaws 
in the documentary, but honestly, it was just too late. Uh, the truths that came, the, the truth that came to the surface, were just far too exhaustive. And all that I knew of my faith just, I just ceased to exist at that point. Um, my scientific and logical mind came to my rescue. I think at that point, uh, and kind of took over. Um, saying like, this is all right. You know, something strange happened, but I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I ever lost hope for mankind. Uh, I think it just shifted. Um, I realized that the hell that existed was happening now, um, in people's lives. I knew many people that were literally going through a real hell, uh, people whose marriages were and families were like falling apart, uh, mine included. Um, and, uh, I knew people who I like, I knew who people who were raped and whose story was not being believed and how people who lost humans uh, that they deeply loved. Um, this was the hell that I always believed in but didn't realize was real. Um, it wasn't some like mythological place beneath my feet that was waiting for death to come. Um, it was like right here. In, in this world that we that we live in right now you know just to clear it up real quick um and so i don't freak out a ton of people i at, at this point i do believe jesus existed as a human on this earth um and i believe the life he lived changed the course of history for all of mankind did he die and, and rise again for us to be saved and to go into all eternity well, let's argue about those things at a later time, because right now I feel like there are more important things at hand. Like, do you need help? Because that's what Jesus was. He was a person who helped people. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, he fed those who were hungry. You know, he, he was a father to the fatherless. And that's, that's all I want to be. I want to be, I want to stand in the gap. So do you believe in life after death now? I'm not sure it matters what my belief in that is. I mean, like, do I believe in aliens? Do you? Does it matter how, does your belief in aliens dictate how you treat another human? You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. my, my belief in an afterlife before shaped how I was going to treat humans now. Like it, that was the whole basis of how I lived and how I treated individuals was for hopes of going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And now it's so interesting. I just feel like most of your guys' stories are very similar in that regard. Yeah. And like, I never grew up with this thought that I had to do certain things here and now to get somewhere else later. So as you're saying, like yeah. your belief in the afterlife dictated how you treated people on earth. Cause I feel like you and I have always connected on the fact that we treated people on earth very similarly yeah. and greeted them with love and lack of judgment. But like, it's so interesting to hear that it came from a very different source. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it did. I felt like, you know, at this point, like when the trap door fell, it was like my mission shifted from trying to get people to say like this quick prayer so I could feel good about getting like another person into heaven, which mm -hmm. is virtually nowhere in the Bible also. Yeah. Um, Signing yeah. on the dotted line. Yeah. You know, it, it, cha it shifted from that to physically helping those people who need help, like giving clothes to those who need to be clothed and feeding those who need food and giving water to those who are thirsty. Mm -hmm. This is simple. Like, why do we make this so complex? You know, I realized that even if the entire story of Jesus was made up, that he set these incredible examples of how to help those that are living in hell right now, right here. Like it no longer became about selling someone like this insurance policy, this Jesus insurance policy and letting them return to the hell they live in just so I can feel good about who, you know, the, the, the God forsaken life that I'm living. Yeah. And so often people will take those as another um, check mark on their list. And then, you know, you ask them, well, have you followed up? Do you know how this person's doing a year later? And they've never spoken to them again. They have no idea what's going on in their life. But other than the fact that that person is a, a check mark on their list and, 
and uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's very disturbing. Yeah, it is. It, it's 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 damaging. It's destructive. You know. So Julie, you asked me a question earlier. You said, "Mark, are you a Christian?" And I think this has kind of been this ongoing joke. Um, and I think it's important before you say yes or no before anyone says yes or no to this because like if i say are you a christian i have an idea in my mind what a christian should or shouldn't be along with everyone else and so before i would say yes to something like that i would first need to explain so i would be an agnostic i would say define your question and then i can answer it um but i would explain to him something like something like this and i wrote it down so that way i wouldn't forget because I tend to forget things. So this is the kind of Christian that I am right here. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe. I have been so incredibly blessed in my life. I have parents who love me. I have a family who has helped me become who I am today, even if they don't realize it. I have this incredible formal education and a great job for which I am so grateful for. I have been given so much. And with all of this that I have been given, I will build my table bigger, which I've said a thousand times, for every human to sit with me, share your story, let's eat and drink together, Republican or Democrat, or Libertarian, or Green Party, or Independent, gay or straight, or questioning, or trans, or bi, or everyone in between, all black or white, Muslim or Christian, and every other construct that we have created to divide us come sit at my table us humans and let's talk about our hurt and our love and our pain and our passions the things that make us human the things that we find solidarity in because you and me we're we're in this together we're right here right now and we deserve a seat at a table and we deserve our story to be told we deserve to be loved completely and that's the kind of faith that i hold and that's the kind of christian that i am Hey friends, well that does it. Uh, all three parts to the Uncensored Christian. This doesn't necessarily mean that is all that we will do with the Uncensored Christian. Uh, we might come back later, revisit these with some other stories uh, that I feel like need to be shared and need to be told. So we might come back and do that in uh, part four and five in the near future. So possibly look forward to those. Again, thank you so much for listening uh, to the Mark Explains podcast. Head on over and make sure you subscribe. We love you guys. Sending love and light to each and every one of you and to every human on this planet. Yeah. So let's end with one thing. And then I'll go inside because honestly, it's it got really cold. I started, it was like <laughs> 73 and I'm not even joking. I think it's like 40 degrees right now. I'm so, Why are you outside? Because yeah. I, it's my private space. <laughs> it's Colorado and it was so beautiful out and I could see the sunset over the mountains and stuff. And it was, I wanted to, I wanted to be there. So I own it. But now you're freezing. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm nipping really hard. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Julie, that look. <laughs> um, so let's play a game and then we'll conclude. And this is what I like to call fake laugh, real laugh. Um, and this <laughs> is where we all fake laugh at each other until we start to real laugh. And then that's, that's it. It's over. Um, so, uh, you know, the rules when you start to laugh, then you lose. Um, and I win. So, uh, Julie, if you could start us off with a fake laugh and then we'll all join um, so just a disclaimer, I've got a sleeping three-year-old, so I may not partake. No, no, you, ha you, gotta, you have to laugh. You just got to do the dad you, laugh. You, ha you, ha you have to do the, the, the whisper. <laughs> the whisper. <laughs> I win. You did. You just won. Anymore. You I did it that quick. I'm, I'm dying. Oh my Mic drop. <laughs> oh, okay. Julie, just go ahead and start us off. And then we'll 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 follow you we'll follow suit. This is so this stupid. Morning, 
was so ridiculous. Everyone that just listened turned the podcast off right then. All of them. uh, All six people. (laughs) 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 Oh, you guys are awesome. All right. Love you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, Julie. Um, Also, just for the record, Julie runs marathons. She ran the Boston how many times? Three. Three. Three times. Amazing. Holy cow. Um, it's a I, lot of work. Great with job. Other, with great, something comes great responsibility. I don't know where it's going with that. <laughs> mojo. I think it's with great mojo comes great are, responsibility. Are you, are, are you quoting Optimus Prime from Transformers? I think so. I think you are. Spent a lot of time with my four and a half year old nephew. Uh, with great power, I think, is, is the, the term. Yeah, that. There you go. The power to run marathons comes great responsibility. Do it. There you go. Great job. Awesome. Thank you, Julie. Lauren, you're awesome. Thank you so much for telling your story. I love you so much. Ashlyn, BFF, lovers and friends. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Thanks, guys. They think we're kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome, honestly. Thank you for taking your time. I I couldn't have asked for more. We appreciate you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Thanks for thanks for what you're doing, man. I think it's yeah. I think it's uh, powerful so and important. Thanks, man. Love you guys. Okay. Yeah. Right, let's go to bed. Talk to you guys later. Good night. Bye. Night. Bye. And then you are going into a little mixer down here, a mixing console, and then into the computer. So there's two entirely separate audios going on here. Can you EQ my voice so it's like extra sexy <laughs> and deep? Hold on. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now talk. Perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>